Good evening, everyone. It's Dr. Niger again with our next episode of Psychology Unplugged. Another great week. Uh, I think I have been able to respond via text, via email. Um, a lot of you guys, like I said, seem so shocked when you text me or email me that I respond. I think I've talked to you uh, yeah, probably about 60-some-odd people this week, and a lot of people from around the country um, and even to Massachusetts are coming to see me, and that was uh, very humbling and very blessed to you know, have your confidence that uh, coming to see me for a neuropsych eval. Um, it's interesting. You know, Julie's here, and she floats around in the ether. Uh, maybe she'll pop on. Maybe she won't. But... I've found, and I've mentioned this before, I'm not sure why, uh, but, you know, I look at the analytics of the podcast, and and I look at the number of phone calls I get, and the one disorder that people really want to understand, know about, see if they have, see if a loved one has, is borderline personality disorder. Uh Julie and I were talking just a, a few minutes ago, and we, we were talking about borderline personality has a very negative stigma and a very negative connotation. And I know there are a lot of providers who, whether they're uh, psychiatric prescribers, whether they're uh, psychotherapists that they see or hear the word borderline and want nothing to do do with it. Um, I, on the other hand, uh, it's the one disorder that I've always enjoyed treating. And I've said this before, not only is it treatable, but it is curable. But the stigma um, around it is really, um, is not a good one. It, it it doesn't have a good reputation, and I think it it impedes uh, it can impede therapy. It can impede uh, psychotropic medications. Like I've mentioned, like many times, people with borderline personality disorder are medicated like bipolarity. Uh, if, if you guys follow the program, you're not gonna be surprised what I'm gonna say. To understand whatever psychopathology you or a loved one or anybody in your in your proximity may be experiencing, have them get a full neuropsychological evaluation. That is the only way to know and delineate the symptomatology idiosyncratic to them. So uh, several people, and actually quite a few people over the past week I've talked to, they want to know when I did the episode uh, about the space. Uh, like where they could read more about that, where what what book that was in. That is simply a metaphor that I have come up with, and it is part of the cognitive behavioral treatment of borderline personality disorder. And today I'm going to talk a little bit more about the space, but I'm also going to add in the voice. Um, the tongue is a powerful weapon. Texting is a powerful weapon. Social media is a powerful weapon. When you have the emotional dysregulation of borderline personality disorder, the voice can be can kind of cut two ways. One, it can be destructive in tearing 
again, remember borderline manifesto relationships. It can be destructive in saying egregious things to individuals that are you are in relationship, whether that's intimate, platonic, familial. Um, and the voice can also be silent. It could it could be silence in the sense of I don't want to say this because again the hallmark criteria is intense fear of real or imagined abandonment. So if I re- say what I really think, I I I'm I'm getting close to that line of is this person in my life going to leave? So the voice is really necessary, and the voice is something that if you have borderline personality is something that you have to develop while you're in that space. And that space is, if you're a Seinfeld fan, I've said this before, opposite George doing what is counterintuitive and tolerating or what's called distress tolerance. It's hard. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. But the longer you can stay in that space of discomfort, the more likely you are to move to two periods of time where you may stay in that space for five minutes to you to stay in that space for two hours. And if you go back out of that space, that's fine. But again, as borderline manifests in, in relationships, I want to talk about uh, what I, what I would call reverse abandonment. So if we take the typical prototype of borderline personality of intense fear of real or imagined abandonment if in the framework of i i am so afraid of you leaving me that i'm i'm paralyzed by that and therefore i live my life as a chameleon giving you whoever that may be an inordinate amount of control over how i define my sense of self if you look at the concept again this is my own terminology of reverse abandonment it is very hard for an individual who may be in a toxic relationship to end that relationship for they will abandon someone else. And that could be equally paralyzing, crippling, and incredibly emotionally draining. So, you know, the board, the, the abandonment kind of, it, it cuts both ways. That there's the fear of if you're in a relationship of that person abandoning you. But at the same time, it, there's also, it cuts the other way where you have a fear of abandoning somebody else because the end result is you will be alone. And that is terrifying for anybody with, with, with borderline personality. As I said in the episode with, uh, borderline versus dependent the dependent has to be in a relationship they cannot be without one the borderline can withstand not being in a relationship huge differentiating factor uh the the, the diagnostic and statistical manual of, of mental disorders makes that very clear and it's a very very fine line and that's again why you need testing where you know borderline uh we sometimes we call them industrial strength borderlines in the field of psychiatry and psychology. And these are the individuals whose my meds aren't working. Uh, I'm in and out of the inpatient units. I'm in and out of uh, partial programs. Uh, those are the ones I think people, whether they're professionals or just lay people, I think that's the picture they get of 
uh, you know, if you were to kind of, kind of draw a picture in the, in the DSM of Borderline, I think that's the prototype that a lot of people operate off of as these incredibly unstable individuals. Not the tr- not necessarily the truth. Are are those individuals out there? Yes. Are they treatable? Yes. Is the treat is treatment easy with them? No. But can you treat them? Can you cure them? Yes. But you have to get the get them to be able to buy in. And to treat borderline personality disorder, you have got to be with a provider who knows how to treat that. This is not a weekend seminar. This is not I took a CEO, CEU course. This is not I re- read a book on it. You have to understand not only the, the psychopathology, but you have to understand personality theory. And with borderlines, um, a lot of times they will do what's called splitting. And splitting is pretty common. Think of it almost as like like psychological gossiping. I'm going to tell you one thing, but I'm going to tell my partner something else. And the whole uh, pathology of borderline uh, personality is preservation of a sense of self that is so fragile that the individual has learned it's I don't have a sense of identity when in reality they do, and that's why I've said to you, if you go you know back to the chocolate Easter egg bunnies or the puzzle boxes, why it's so why it has the highest success rate of treatment is all the pieces are there, but developing a healthy voice. And being, again, back to Maslow's quote, being independent of the good opinions of others. To make progress if you're in treatment for borderline personality, use your voice. But I've said this, and if you ask my patients, what would Dr. Niger always say? He would say, pay attention to your motivation and be independent of the outcomes. Be independent of the reactions of other people. That's, That's part of being in the space, and that's part of using your voice. Yes, the abandonment will come. Pain comes to all of us. Uh, the, the, I tell people the, the quiet times, the silent times, nighttime. That's 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 when the demons come. That's when the self doubt comes. That's where the self criticism comes. That's where the woulda coulda shoulda thinking comes. That that's where all the what ifs come from. But stop giving people so much power over who you are. It doesn't mean you like the image of who you are. It doesn't ensure a pleasing image, but it should be your image. It should be, you know, independent of whether you like it or not. Working and treating with borderline personality is getting to accept the fact that, you can't, one, you can't change something until you become aware of it. Secondly, you know, like you do like marriage and family therapy, you, you, you can't hold a partner, or a spouse, a significant other um, responsible f- for something if you don't make them aware of it. But it's again, it's amazing power of the human condition that you can take the power that you're giving other individuals over how you define your sense of self and reclaim it. And you can reconstitute parts of yourself that this is a disorder that is so interconnected with the opinions uh, and perceived opinions, um, perceived reactions. Uh, It's incredibly exhausting. But unless you get into that space, you're not going to make progress. And, you you know, it's like it's like an alcoholic saying, yeah, um, 
All right, Doc, I, I can finally admit I have a problem with alcohol. All right, what are you going to do about it, John? I'm not, I'm not going to do anything, but, yeah, that that's great. You can admit it, but, you know, cut out the BS. That's where the work takes place, is you have to put yourself in the space. And are other people, because they, they the people that you're in, borderlines are in a relationship with, they already are going to predict what the outcome is going to be. They're going to predict how this is how he or she is going to react. And yes, borderline does manifest in men just as it does in women. I said this before. Julie's always asked me to talk about prevalence rates in the current diagnostic manual. I was consulting with my colleague the other day who is an amazing clinical psychologist. I sent a lot of people to in Massachusetts for psychotherapy. Like We don't really trust the prevalence rates in the current DSM with the pandemic and the amount of people who have entered into the mental health system. But you have a voice and it if you look at it if you just step back and say oh my god that is so empowering don't worry about what comes out of your voice first believe because you're not going to use your voice until you believe you have a voice and you're not going to step into the space until you are i guess one reason people change not going to go through the whole analogy again. It's only when you're uncomfortable. You can reclaim your life. You can, you can, you can cut through the, the psychological shackles that bound, that bind you to how others dictate or how you allow others to dictate. Nobody can make you happy. Nobody can make you sad. Nobody can make you depressed. Nobody can make you angry. We all choose our emotional state, and, and, and you know my whole perspective on emotions. They have no place in therapy. They're irrelevant. Everything starts with a thought. Everything leads to a behavior. Emotions are just the byproduct of it. This is where Julie and I kind of dis- disagree on DBT versus CBT. Um, different, you know, different modalities. Uh, I'm, I'm a strict cognitive behavioral. Uh, professional from a therapeutic standpoint but the voice is is something that you already have it's not something you need to go out and learn it's not something you need to go take a class on it's not something that you need somebody to teach you like you don't you don't you don't need uh, what's that program um you don't need rosetta stone to learn a new language you already have the vocabulary it's just believing that you can say something if if you, there's some any, any kind of perceived threat or 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 negativity or or toxicity or hostility, you have a right to defend your sense of self, reclaim your sense of self, stop giving other people and stop believing other people. We do we have the fundamental tendency to believe, definition of assume, we believe that what other people say about us is right. And in borderline pathology, that's what oftentimes leads to self-injurious behaviors. It leads to suicidal ideations. It leads to medication noncompliance. Uh, law of proximity, the, somebody, the, the, the closer somebody is to you in relationship, again, intimate, platonic, familial, friendship, those words, they impact us more. But the borderline is hypersensitive to the perceived reactions of other people. But because they cannot, they don't possess the ability to get into a state of distress tolerance is why they suffer and struggle so much 
from a painful perspective. And a whole a huge part of doing this podcast was to instill a sense of hope and instill a sense of uh, of transparency. Because as a neuropsychologist and as a diagnostician, the only way to know how what a diagnosis is with complete accuracy and 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 breaking the symptoms down idiosyncratic to the to the pathology is to get a full neuropsych eval. But I, 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 here comes Julie; she's hovering around. I think Julie should talk about how people who with borderline personality want medication and how it's medicated. So I'm going to speak about how, as a provider, as a therapist, and as a med provider, sometimes how, that's my dryer, if you can hear that in the background, Um, we can, there's a certain amount of, you have to picture, like, for, metaphorically, um, it's the child in the crib, and this is not a diss whatsoever. It's a child in a crib who never learned how to self, self-soothe. I've said this before. It's walking on eggshells, literally. It's, I hate you, don't leave me. But it's more complicated than that. The problem in healthcare, I believe, from a therapist's perspective and also a medication provider perspective of treating people who have conditions is that there's very often dual diagnosis. So most often I find that people with borderline personality disorder and I come from the training that no one should be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder before the age of 18. That's what I learned. We all know that. That is completely incorrect. Stop. No. Listen, it depends on what side of the Charles you're on, okay, in Boston. All right? You got the Cambridge Hospital side. You got the MGH side. Um, You can look up, you know, the history of uh, mental mental illness diagnoses and, and treatment over the years, decades, decades. But really, I've come to believe that, by the time a person turns 18 and becomes an adult and you can officially, the reason, and this is what this is all about, this program is all about the absolute stigma that is, that is, that exists in, in, um, healthcare, behavioral healthcare with borderline personality. Most providers see that and they're like, I'm not touching it. Um, roll their eyes. Here's why. The reason why is, is that because people who struggle with this condition can't self-soothe, they desperately try to latch on to other people to help them self-soothe. The problem is, is burnout. Providers get burnt out because very often, almost probably 90% of the time, they're with a therapist that doesn't know the diagnosis or doesn't know how to treat that diagnosis. And that's key in the medication department. I wear two hats. I'm grateful for that because if I didn't have my therapy background, I wouldn't have a clue about medicating people who have borderline personality disorder. It's really 
I truly believe after knowing core and over the years and learning more about it, it's that, you know, we used to call borderline personality disorder who were under 18 petunias um, in my training, not like technical training, but like, you know, that was sort of the word on the street. Oh, it's a petunia. It's someone, you know, heading in that direction. You can't diagnose them. Again, depends on where you are in the United States or in the world. But you uh, can diagnose yeah, them. I know, Cor. I think people do a huge disservice I by agree. not diagnosing That's it. what I'm saying. Because personality theory is crystallized between five and eight years of age. I have the mic. Step back. Okay. So, I hate you, don't leave me. It's the tug of war. People who show up, and if you even get a whiff, this is a vibe thing. As a professional in the field, I pick up on the vibe almost immediately, not because I'm good at it, just because I've had a lot of experience with it. So if I pick that up and someone hasn't been tested and they tell me that they've been on a bevy of medications in their, in their history and nothing's worked, maybe they just straight up have a personality disorder. Well, what medications would you typically see people be on that aren't working? Typically what you see is so borderline personality um, characteristics are very similar to, to that of bipolar disorder and of PTSD. Um, there's, you know, a hyper arousal, there's hypervigilance, there's reaction. Um, there's like, um, you know, just a very, uh, um, what's that called? Um, the, the reaction is not necessarily like, compatible with the actual you know subject matter so people get very dramatic the punishment doesn't fit the crime thank you and so people get extremely dramatic and you can see it so you you can see it the problem is is as as a med provider you only have a certain amount of time that you need to help this person and that's what you're really trying to do except if in the perfect world if you have a definitive diagnosis let's say someone has borderline personality disorder, PTSD, which generally is, I think, the norm, um, or some sort of anxiety disorder and depression or, you know, body dysmorphic disorder or all cut trauma, some sort of trauma history. Um, what we're trying to do is target symptoms. So we may be able to chase a PTSD or a generalized anxiety disorder that coexists with someone who actually has borderline personality disorder. Major depressive disorder. Very often, people with borderline personality are very depressed. Now, depression can look like major depressive disorder, but there's a lot of agitation that comes with borderline personality disorder. They can simply cannot tolerate being in their own skin at times, and they come into your office and they're spilling all out of yourself. And what happens is, is most providers, and I've been there, I've done it, I've rolled my eyes, believe me. In managed care, I have rolled my eyes because I only have so much time. I know this person has this disorder, but they haven't been formally diagnosed. I'm working for, you know, managed care. It's like, oh my God. I have 15 minutes. Do I deliver the news that they have bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, or do I just like try to help deal with the symptomatology, which is really what providers are trained to do? Because I wear both hats, I am grateful. I feel like 
there's a little dance. It's a dance. It's all a dance. Relationships are all a dance. And it's also a dance in a therapeutic relationship. And to know and tease out what may be depression, what may be PTSD, that's that's treatable with medication. Bipolarity, very common with people with bipolar disorder. I don't know the prevalence. I haven't looked at the DSM-4 about that. I could Five. be wrong. 5%? No, DSM-5. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I guess I haven't looked at it in a while. Oh, Holy DSM-4, crap. The TR and the 5. Jeez. All right. So anyway, um, just saying that, try, trying to give you like a picture of like, you have to look at this in a multidimensional way. And that's the way I, as a provider, would want to or hope to be able to help somebody, actually help somebody. And I would, in my office, would say, listen, okay, I get it. All right, we're targeting depression. We're targeting PTSD. We're targeting bipolarity. We're targeting your agitation. And people who have personality disorders get very, very agitated. So do people with PTSD. So do people with bipolar disorder. So do people with major depressive disorder, especially the younger they are. Extreme agitation. Agitation shows up in the most profound of ways. It interferes with relationships. It interferes with functioning. It interferes with working. People lose jobs over it because they have very low distress tolerance. They lose relationships over it. They lose a lot over it. But again, I hate you, don't leave me. And don't let your biography be your biology. Last thing I want to say, and I'll probably be back. I mean, come on. But the last thing I want to say is your story doesn't mean this is your story for the rest of your life. It's what you do with the rest of your life. You're here. Why why bitch over it? Like why, you know, just be a problem solver. But you know what? You can help somebody who wants help. You cannot want it more than your clients. And I very often have people who want help. And I very often will have people who are just like, so what are the meds going to do? And the meds only do so much. So typically with medications and, and borderline personality, because I said it has many veils and it shows up in an office with a provider and it looks like all different kinds of diagnoses. So you do the math. All right. You're going to wind up on a mood stabilizer. You're going to wind up on uh, an antipsychotic to treat the agitation or a benzo. Um, or, and also you're going to be on an antidepressant low, low, what? Oh my God. So it, give it a rest. I'm just saying, look at it contextually. Everybody's got their story. Everybody has a past, but you know what? If you let your biography become your biology, you're going to be in big trouble because after all of the you know, uh, conferences I've been to, one in particular, holistic mental health, all of it pointed to inflammation leading to disease. Well, what causes inflammation? Well, anxiety. Anxiety causes inflammation. People who are miserable, they're inflamed. That's a whole other, you know, show, I guess. But you really have to think about this in like a, a, a total health you're not all washed up. Just brush your knees off and then just learn more. And But you know what? As a provider for medication, I'm only as powerful as 
the therapist who is working with this client. I can do some things, but I can't do the whole full boat therapy. I do, but I I don't all the time. I need a solid therapist who knows CBT and or DBT. No, CBT. Or DBT. CBT. I recommend that you, um, if you want to learn more about borderline in like kind of a novel form, um, the person who wrote this book, I would never disclose who it is, but it was under a pen name, um, which will remain anonymous. It's called Sirene's Dance. People of borderline personality use sexual sensuality as power. Um, they're, they can be, they can come off as very dramatic. Um, and they think that, you know, like anything, sex is a language. And I'm not talking about like, but you know, this is where sometimes people feel powerful or where they're, when they're throwing an ashtray across the room. So you're, you're getting a lot of emotion. Um, but at the same time, providers get worn out by this. So they, they don't have the time to deal with it. They don't have the energy to deal with it. And they're worn out. This is why people, this is why borderline personality is stigmatized. Um, because you see it coming and you're like, oh my God, nothing I do, no meds work, blah, 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 blah. It's just, it's just a perspective. But I wanted to just share that with you. And then you, you just you just leave. <laughs> you put me back on. So I think Julie shed some really good light. Um, you can see that we vehemently disagree on cognitive behavioral therapy versus dialectical behavioral therapy. And I will stand by this 100%. Cognitive behavioral therapy is what you need because emotions have no no place in therapy. It doesn't mean you're not empathic, understand the pain somebody's in, uh, are, are not able to to recognize the distress. But to overcome borderline personality, which you can. And, you know, back to what Julie said, her training, you know, I think was wrong. Her, her tra- So as I was saying, you know, the, the the diagnoses of of borderline personality and any personality disorders should be diagnosed when it's appropriate as you enter treatment and and with the exception of antisocial personality disorder that's the only one in the DSM that says you can only can't diagnose it prior to age or, or until after age 18 because at age 18 you can be tried as an adult that's the only differentiation we had a little problem with the microphones if i repeated this i apologize um so anybody who thinks that you can't diagnose personality disorders like i said this before and again i apologize we had a little problem with the microphone i think if you don't diagnose it you're basically saying hey i did your blood test you have cancer but i can't tell you until you're age 18 and you let that fester it becomes crystallized becomes more ingrained and that's a disservice and not good clinical practice and that's also part of my my argument about the stigma of borderline personality disorder because why wouldn't you want to treat it as and diagnose it as early as possible because there is a stigma to borderline personality and nobody wants to put that on the chart before the age of 18 at least where we live i don't know about your state 
but that's what happens here. But that's the problem with psychology. Like we, like you take Erickson's model. You, you could take Piaget's model. We have these, you know, these demarcations of lines. You don't, you know, become you know Piaget's model. You don't just de- develop formal operational thinking on on, on your 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 twelfth birthday. You know, it, it it's well. I don't want to put that label on, but you know, here here's the issue I have. If you're thinking, I don't want to put that label on, and you're sensing that I think this is what the diagnosis is, why are you not treating it? They, they, treat, they treat it. They will put, diagnostically, borderline tendencies, and that is the red flag. Unfortunately and sadly, it's a red flag in medicine, in behavioral medicine. And, 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 and you know, from... Unless a- you love treating this type of condition no that, okay okay your logic is paradoxical you're saying we'll put it in as a provisional diagnosis basically meaning you're recognizing that it's there but i'm not going to put it on paper unless i love treating it which means then you know it's there no you're getting all no you're being dramatic this is about diagnostics so if someone who isn't a neuropsychologist is a practitioner out there and they pick up the vibe and it's pretty obvious they will put if you're under 18 borderline tendencies they do that with all the personality disorders not me totally unacceptable well that's your opinion no that's the fact that's personality theory that's the that's the i know but that's the dsm but that's i mean you know anyhow you can see julie and i have different perspectives I just wanted to shed light and clarify some things about the space, talking about the voice, talking about early diagnostics. If you live in another state, you want to come out to see me to do testing, as a lot of you guys are, I'm more than happy to do it. Uh, if you want consultations, I'm more than happy to do that. This whole program is about psychoeducation. It's about our passion about the field. It's our passion about educating people, demystifying mental health instilling hope in people and just it, it's such a huge field and everything is treatable it, it doesn't mean it's easy it doesn't mean you're it, it's your medication it doesn't mean it's just therapy it doesn't mean it's going to happen in a week two weeks a month give it time trust the process do the work so as always humbly i appreciate everybody who listens to this program uh feel free as always to reach out at psychology un, uh, psychology unplugged at outlook.com that comes right to my phone um you can reach out to me through psychology today um, my phone number on the east coast in the united states is 617-750-9411 um this was kind of a a passion episode and i i hope you guys see through that that this is what Jewel and I are passionate about. It's about helping people, treating people, and curing people. Until next week, be well, guys. Talk to you.